Would you help get us to the place where we can do that? Again, as we look at your word today, uh, as we look at the Beatitudes and the kind of disciples that you want us to be, I, I pray that we'd see your shaping hand. You're the potter, we're the clay, and this is who we want to be. We want to be meek, and we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I pray that as we look at those two Beatitudes, that you would uh, show us how we can have those in increasing measure in our own lives. We thank you for your word again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. A um, little blunder last night. I had great notes to show on the overhead, but I forgot to email them to Jim, so they're not there. Uh, but I was going to start with the EFCA vision statement. You know, when people ask, where should Three Lakes Church be going? What should be our focus? What should we get really, really good at? Um, I think I'd answer with the EFCA vision statement. I think it's a great vision. And I can't put it up this week. I'll try to put it up next week. But let me read it for you. We are praying that God would grant us one million disciple makers impacting 100 million people with the gospel along with 100 Acts 19 locations globally where the gospel is transforming whole cities and regions rather than a simple neighborhood, rather than simply a neighborhood. Now, the EFCA's vision statement is, is, is two parts. One is that God would raise up 100 million disciple maker sorry um, a million disciple makers impacting a hundred million people so that would be a million disciple makers who over the course of their lifetime impact help disciple a hundred people each so as you're sitting there if you just think to yourself okay i have a lifetime to impact a hundred people for the gospel maybe that's sharing your faith and seeing someone come to christ that's investing in people in your small group. That, that's meeting with a group of guys or a group of ladies and, and, and praying for each other. But a hundred people over the course of your lifetime. That, that's the vision. A million disciple makers impacting a hundred million people. The second part of that is uh, this idea that they're, they're going to have these Acts 19 locations. What, what they mean by that is they, they want to focus on certain cities throughout the world where they can put a lot of resources and effort into transforming entire communities and tri entire cities. Probably Three Lakes is not one of those places, okay? <laughs> but they're trying to choose strategically a hundred different cities where they could try to transform entire communities for Christ. I think it's the first part, though, that should capture every single EFCA church, that we have to be a church of disciple-makers. Hence, we're doing this series called The Heart of Discipleship, and we're starting with the Beatitudes. I want to talk in the coming weeks on how we can disciple, what does that look like, but before I get to the how, I just want to spend some time talking about who we're supposed to be. Like, what's the product? If you become a disciple, what does that even look like? And so I talked last week about how in, in uh, Bible school we had to come up with our list of this is what a disciple looks like. Well, this is Jesus' description of what a disciple looks like. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. 
While you do that, I'm going to grab my prop. All right, Matthew chapter 5. This is the Beatitudes. If you weren't here last week and you're still saying, what in the world is a Beatitude? Uh, It's a statement of blessing. Really simple. It's a statement of blessing. These who are the most blessed people you can know, that you can be. You want to see what ought to be the happiest people? It's a person that fits this description. And it seems... It seems very uh, uh, ironic or very, very opposite maybe because we talked last week about blessed are those who mourn. So you're really sad and that makes you really blessed or even very happy. You're really happy that you're really sad. But we talked about how, no, mourning is about mourning over your sin. It's about looking at the sin of the world and saying this breaks the heart of God and it breaks my heart too. It seems like Jesus saved all of his indignation for religious people that messed up worship, that messed up the, the religious community. That was the Pharisees. But when it came to sinners, it broke his heart. It was sadness that he felt, primarily. Are we sad over our sin? That, that Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, the first one is blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit come to God and say, I've got no spiritual currency. I've got nothing. Everything that I have that I think makes me great really matters nothing at all because I don't have anything, any standing before God. I have nothing to offer God. I'm a sinner, which is why I mourn. That's blessed are the poor in spirit. Today we're looking at verses 5 and 6. Very simple. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Okay, so first is the meek. First is the meek. We all know people who are not meek, right? It would never be us, I'm sure, but they're the people around us, right? The the prideful people, the people that seem to have everything going for them. They have kids that always seem to be obedient. Uh, they, They have great health. They're intelligent, that's led them to good jobs, they make a lot of money, and everything, everything seems to go well. They're, they're, they're beautiful people, they're handsome, they're beautiful. Everything's good. And, and, they, and they talk about how good they are too, which drives you crazy. And you think, why do they always have to point out how great their kids are and every, everything that's amazing is going on? Why do they have to do that? In other words, why would God even bless them if they're arrogant about it? What's up with that? Have you ever had that conversation with yourself? Like, why them? And, and God, why would you bless them with a lot of money, a lot of financial resources? Because they spend it on themselves. doesn't seem very meek. We do this. Let's set that aside for a second and say, it, it's not about them at all. Meekness is about me. It's not what I think they're doing, because they're responsible to God for that, and He's responsible for how He blesses them, and whatever that looks like. But what about me? Am I meek? What does meekness mean? Well, it's certainly not this false, uh, we kind of talked about this last week, like, I'm no good, I'm terrible. 
it's not that. But it is important to understand. So a description of meekness, and you have this in your, in your uh, handouts. Meekness means gentleness. In fact, some translations of the Bible say, Blessed are the gentle. Meekness means gentleness, humility, consideration, and courtesy. It's these words that describe a person that has a true view of themselves. Let me explain what I mean. A true view of yourself. I'm going to keep going with my cup analogy from last week. So, the uh, people that are poor in spirit realize, I have no spiritual currency, my cup is empty. In fact, when my cup is full, actually I fill it with sin. And so we said, blessed are they that mourn. Because I filled my cup with, with dirt and garbage that now Christ gets to clean up by giving his life on the cross. That's the gospel. And so Christ cleans up my dirt and my junk, and I've mourned over it. And in fact, when I sin this week, I should have an emotional reaction to that sin. I should continue mourning and repenting. If you want to mourn, then you repent of your sin, sincerely. But now Jesus has given me living water. And and, and a meek person says, all the stuff that I used to pat myself on the back for really doesn't mean anything. Paul calls that stuff rubbish in Philippians. It doesn't matter at all. All that matters is I've got living water. That's all that matters. So am I proud of... I feel my microphone about to fall off. Let's put that back on. So am am I proud of my paycheck? Am I proud of my house? My two houses? You know, what makes me feel good? My kids are all doing well. They're smart. They're intelligent. They're going to great colleges. Whatever makes me feel good about myself, I have to recognize those are just, those are just blessings from God. If I'm intelligent, God gave me intelligence. If I'm strong, God gave me strength. If, if my kids get into a great school, God worked that thing out. But really, I'm only proud of the fact that I've got living water in my life. I mean, that, that is the most important thing. So a meek person has a true view of themselves. I'm not really that great. And you may think I'm great, or you may think someone else is great because of whatever, but I'm not really that great. And so you have this true view of yourself. And, and you can still say, God made me really athletic. You know? I mean, I'm thinking about people that are in professional sports. I mean, you, you wonder why pride becomes an issue in professional sports. Because there's a huge paycheck. Because there's people praising you. Do you know Michael Jordan's nickname for himself? Who knows? I mean, you know, nobody knows. Yahweh. Okay? A true view of yourself says, I got nothing. And anything I do have has been given to me by God. I owe him the credit. And so I'm meek. Meekness, gentleness, humility, consideration, courtesy. It's, it's not weakness. Now, I don't mean Paul's version of weakness where he says, uh, when I'm weak, I'm strong. But sometimes we think meek means weak. Like, 
you have to act weak and you have to act like you're not strong and you have to act like you're, you, you know, kind of being a pushover. And, and, and it's people acting a certain way. And, and we're not talking about that. You can be confident. You know, you think about um, probably almost everybody in this room has been through a job interview. And they're going to ask you what your strengths are. A meek person doesn't say, well, nothing really, nothing. I've got living water. I'm excited about that. <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> You're hired. Share that living water. No, um, but it doesn't mean you can't talk about your strengths in the right context. But, but it's that you're using those strengths for other people. That I'm not strong for myself. I'm not intelligent for myself. I don't have gifts to make me look better and to me, make me look greater. It's for other people's benefit. And so... You know, the problem is, we'll put the problem slide up. The problem is, by nature, we're full of selfish ambition and vain conceit. We're full of selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Paul says, don't have that. Don't have that selfish ambition and vain. Don't, don't use your strength for yourself. Don't be all about you. Be about other people. That's what meek people do. They say, oh, God, you made me intelligent. So... Let me use that to better other people's lives. Maybe you go into counseling. I have a heart for other people and a desire to learn and figure things out. I'm going to use that for other people. Right? God made me strong. God made me a good worker. God made me good at fixing things. Whose stuff can I fix? You know? I wish I could fix more things in my house. I mean, if I watch a YouTube video, sometimes I can figure it out. Sometimes I can't. Uh... But do what you can do for the good of other people. That is a meek person. Uh, who in the Bible would be a really great example of being confident, strong, and yet meek? Certainly, I would say David. Especially when he's on the run from King Saul before, you know, Like, you know you're going to be king and you're going to have the top spot. You're going to be the greatest in the land. There's only one guy in your way, King Saul. And by the way, he wants to kill you. And by the way, you have a chance to take his life. He he is in your grasp. You are strong. You've got some men with you. And you could take out your opponent. And you don't do it. Meek people don't insist on having their way. They insist on God's way. Are you someone that finds yourself always going back to what your rights are? You know? Are you someone that can lay your rights down for the good of other people? Isn't that what Jesus did? He has rights to being the Son of God. The Son of God should never be spit on by right. The Son of God should never be frail, should never be killed, should never be tortured, whipped. By rights, that should never happen to the one who is divine. And yet he was. And so, are there areas of your life where you can apply meekness and you can say, you know what? I could insist on having my way in this. But for your good, for your benefit, I'm going to back off. 
It might be forgiving a debt. A lot of ways this can play out. But do you want God's best for you? Do you want God's blessing on you? Be meek. Be meek. Be gentle with people. Now there's a blessing for the meek. There's a blessing for the meek. Uh, It goes like this. They will inherit the earth. Oh, well, that's the problem with all the prideful people because they want to inherit the earth, right? They're the ones that want the best. No, actually the meek are going to get that. They're going to inherit the earth. Now, that, that means one thing in that, you know, during the millennium, we're, we're actually literally going to inherit the earth, right? We talked about that during our Revelation series. For a thousand years, we're going to reign in Christ on earth. Then we get eternity with him. You know, we're actually going to reign. We're actually going to inherit the earth literally and rule with Christ. So this promise will be fulfilled completely. But there's the other sense of you get some of that right now. Right now. Do you need to own a spot on the beach to enjoy its splendor? Can you own a sunset? You know, there's a sense where God has given you all of this. He's just given it in joy. You go out snowmobiling, you know, you're in the woods. Crazy people, negative 20, and you're out there zipping around, you know, and you're still enjoying what you see. It's all yours. Every tree out there is yours. Enjoy it. He's given it to you. You've inherited the earth. There's another sense, though, that uh, this is 2 Peter 1.3, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Anything you need in this life to be godly, to live for Christ, it's yours. He's already given it to you. It, it's yours. Now, that might fly in the face of the areas where we think we're lacking this or that, and we want this or that, but God has supplied what you need. We have inherited the earth. He's given it to us. You need spiritual support, it's yours. Counsel, it's yours. Prayer, it's yours. It's yours. And yes, I know there's a fuller sense in the future where you're going to receive all things. I I know that. But what you need right now is yours, according to the promise of God. That's the meek. Let's transition. Let's talk about the sinful for a few minutes here. And, And those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is the opposite. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled now this is important I didn't bring my dirty cup this week last week I had my dirty cup up here with all the dirt and crud in it if you don't mourn over your sin you'll never get to hungering and thirsting for righteousness okay is that, is that fair to say? I mean, I think there's a progression here in the Beatitudes, you know. Number one is, I'm poor in spirit. I've got nothing on my own. I need God to fill me up with that living water. Number two, I'm mourning over my sin. I hate what I've done. I've hate, I hate the dirt in my life. I'm repenting of it. I'm mourning. And then you get to number three, and you're like, 
If it wasn't for God, I, I'd have nothing going for me. So you can be meek, you can be gentle, not insist on your way, but insist on God's way. And then number four, if you have emptied your cup of sin and you've repented of it, you're now available to be filled with righteousness. But here's the problem. I'm not talking right now about sinful things that, are, that have been done to you. I mean, put those aside for a second, because we've all been sinned against, some of us, deeply. I want to talk about your sin, the things that you have done. Let's admit this. You're not just a victim of sin. It's not just that you are a, such a good person, and then sin comes along and takes over you, and, and you do something really stupid. You're not, a just, you're not a victim of sin. You're a lover of sin. Can, can we admit that? We like to sin. Sin can be fun. It can be pleasurable. It can seem great at the time. We love to sin. That's our problem. That's what Paul talks about in Romans. He says, The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the sin living in me, I mean, that's doing these things. That's Romans seven fifteen through 25. You could read that at a different time. But he's like, there's this conflict in me. The things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And so it's the sin living in me. So he's saying, yeah, we all have this problem. We love to sin. And sin can feel really good. It can feel good when someone wrongs you and then you tell your circle of friends, oh, that's so good, but it's gossip. It can feel good when you almost get in trouble at work for something, but then you lied and you got out of it. And then you said that little sorry God after that lie was over. I mean, I got out of the trouble that I would have been in. Sorry, God. And then you just keep going with your day. You don't even think twice about it. You know, This is what we do. And we never stop to step back and say, I really like to sin. <laughs> I got a problem. I'm a lover of sin, which should go back to beatitude number two. That should cause you to mourn. That should cause you sorrow. Your desire for darkness ought to cause great grief in your soul. And then after the grief, after you repent, you're now available to be filled up. I'll take another dose of righteousness, please. What is righteousness? Well, righteousness, I always, the, the thing I tell my kids on this, you know, if you want to know what righteousness is, the word right is in it. It means you're in a right relationship with God. You're doing right. Right is a big part of righteousness. But I would say if, if you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, what we're saying is you're hungering and thirsting for Christ. That's it. You're hungering and thirsting for Christ. You want more of Him in your life and less of you in your life. I've been crucified with Christ and now Christ lives in me. It has at least three different aspects to it. Legal, moral, and social. Here's where I'd love to have my notes on the screen behind me, but I don't. So, if you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians, uh, you can look at this with me. 1 Corinthians 1.30. There is a typo in your notes there. It's not Colossians. It's 1 Corinthians 1.30. Uh, it 
we'll jump around a little bit. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 1.30. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Who is our righteousness? Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. And I, and I love that. That God can look at me and see perfection, because I'm not perfect. But, but, I, but I'm filled with the righteousness of Christ. It's there. It has legal implications. We call this justification. It's God looking at me and saying, not guilty. The thing you just did yesterday, not guilty. I'm justified. Legally, I'm going to stand before God, the judge, and he's going to say not guilty because he's giving me Jesus' righteousness. It's a done deal. I've received it. I know the verdict on the last day. Not guilty. That, that's, a, that's a position, by the way that you all have that believe in Christ. God's given that to you. Now, secondly, there are moral implications. Jump over to James 1.20. By the way, I could talk for 20 minutes on each of these. I've chosen not to for the sake of brevity, but um, James 1.20. And somehow my... um, Things that I'm, the verses I've picked here are not matching up. Okay. I'm looking for um, the one on anger. Oh, it's right there. I looked at the wrong chapter. Here we go. We'll start in 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So, okay. My anger doesn't bring about a righteous life. Now you can say, wait a minute, time out, I'm already righteous in Christ. It's a done deal, right? You said that, justified. I am righteous, I'm perfect. God looks at me and sees Jesus. Yes, but righteousness also refers to what you actually do. Are you living righteously? Are you living like Christ? Do you want to live like Christ? Then you better be careful when you get angry because that doesn't usually bring about the righteous life God requires. Righteousness refers to how you live your life. Do you live like Christ or not? The last one is social. Go to Isaiah 58. A lot of you will know exactly where I'm taking you now. Love, one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. There's a lot of great passages in Isaiah. This is one of those standout ones. It's just amazing. People of Israel are fasting, right? They're going without food so they can, so they can uh, uh, please the Lord. And then the Lord says back to them in Isaiah 58, 6, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of a yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor wanderer with the shelter when you see the naked to clothe him? and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Your righteousness will go before you. Righteousness has this component of social justice. Am I helping the poor? Am I helping people in need? Someone needs to get to the doctor. They don't have a car. Am I the one stepping up to do that? We do that here at this church. People don't have enough money for heat. Are we helping with that? 
Are we helping people that don't know how to budget their money, which is why they're in the problem in the first place? Are we lending our minds to that problem and helping them understand how to, how to use your money correctly? It's social justice, helping those that are in need. And we've all been in need. That's righteousness. Again, the problem is our desire for sin. We enjoy sin. We love sin. Since we're talking about fasting, I've done fasting and this is, this is the interesting thing about fasting. And many of you that have fast, when you fast, you notice this about yourself. Next time you fast, I want you to think to yourself, that's how I treat sin. The way I treat food during a fast is how I treat sin. Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Well, Jesus is on a fast. He's not eating for a purpose, a spiritual purpose. He can't just turn those stones to bread when he's devoted this time to fast. Here's what happens when I fast. I can still eat that, can't I? Or or you're you're fast and then you go, I got an appointment with this person. It's over lunch. But I'm fasting. This is a spiritual thing, right, that I'm having lunch with this person. I should break my fast to eat with this person, right? Isn't that what I should do? And, And you start to justify eating even though you set aside that time to not eat and to devote more time to prayer. It's funny. When you fast, your brain tells you all sorts of things about how much you need food. And yet you tell yourself, I need the Lord more. Man shall not live on bread alone, right? But every word that comes from the mouth of God. I need God more than I need lunch. but I can tell myself a great many things to justify having that lunch. I feel kind of weak. Oh, man, I'm fasting. I feel kind of weak. Well, have a glass of water, you know? I mean, do something. Have some juice. I don't know. Maybe do something to make sure that you're okay. But there's a lot of stuff I told myself when I fasted. And I think that's how I treat sin. That's how we treat sin. Oh, it's okay just this one time. This won't be that bad. No one knows that I've snuck this thing out of the cupboard. Do it sometime, and you'll realize. I, I um, a mentor in my life once said uh, he was he was up late watching the Badger game, a football game before church the next day, you know, and he wanted to like raid the cupboard, and he said, "I'm just going to say no to the flesh, and I'm not going to eat that thing that I want to eat." And I'm like, "Well, you know, you could eat that, right?" It's okay for you to get in the cupboard and get that out and eat what, you know. It'd be okay, right? He's like, I just want to make sure I remind my flesh it's not in charge of me. You know. That's awesome. You know that? That's awesome. You want to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So God's working in me to hunger and thirst for righteousness. But I need to work out my salvation and do my part in it. I think part of that is showing up in church and worshiping Christ together. It's feasting on the Word of God. Some of us, we have three meals a day, and none of them are spiritual. You know, that should convict us. If you don't hunger for the Word, that should be something that you think about. 
because you'll get your next meal. If you don't, if you're like church, oh man, church, you know, go. Ask God for a hunger for it, but you move your body into the place where God can impact you and help you hunger. The promise is you will be filled. That's a promise. God will fill you up. He will help you live the righteous life that he wants for you. He will help you live for other people. And that's an amazing promise. As we keep moving through this series, I want to keep talking about what a disciple looks like, and I want to keep talking about um, how can we disciple people better in this church. That's where we're going. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to pray for you, for those two qualities in your life. Worship team, would you come up and prepare for the last song? Jesus, we thank you that none of us are born naturally meek or hungering, and yet your spirit does it in us. And and, and we love that because that means you get the glory. For the really meek people, you get the glory for helping them be that way. For the people that hunger and thirst for righteousness, you get the glory because you've made us that way. You've given us the righteousness of Christ. I pray, I pray for us that you would be shaping this church to look more and more the way you want us to be. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.